Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russian Eurasia Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Jeff Mankoff. Uh, in this episode, I am joined by Marian Schwartz, who's an award-winning translator of both contemporary and classic Russian literature. Uh, her most recent book is uh, Olga Slavnikova's The Man Who Couldn't Die, The Tale of an Authentic Human Being, uh, which is a funny, kind of poignant novel about uh, life in the 1990s Russia and the memory of the Second World War. Um, we're going to talk about that, about translating Russian literature in general, and about the, the Russian literary scene uh, in and out of translation. Uh, interesting conversation, uh, touches on some topics we don't usually get to discuss on Russian roulette, but uh, we hope you'll enjoy it. So please join us. back to Russian Roulette. I'm joined in the studio today by Marian Schwartz, who is a translator of classic and contemporary Russian fiction. Uh, she has a new translation out of Olga Slavnikova's book, uh, The Man Who Couldn't Die. Um, she's here to talk about uh, the book, about translation, about her relationship to Russian literature. Uh, Marian, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. So, Marion, this uh, is a book about sort of the chaos of the transition from the Soviet Union into the, the new Russia and how people did or, or didn't uh, deal with that transition. What drew you to this particular text as something to translate? I've translated quite a bit of Slavnikova. I've translated uh, one book has come out called 2017, which was a prize-winning book in Russian that was set in the near future in 2017, and several stories of hers. And I think she's one of the finer writers. Having read most of her output at this point, I always loved this book. This was always the, the one. And when the Russian Library started up, I... I actually translated the book ahead before I had a contract. I had there's not many books I'll do that for, but I had such confidence in it that I went ahead and did that. They took it and they've uh did a beautiful job with it. So it's very much of a piece of her her style. She's got a quite a specific style. She's known for being rather dense in a good way. Not dense, stupid, but dense, <laughs> stylistically dense, um, has extremely vivid visuals. Um, we did a, a book event last night, and she was saying that she was talking about how visual her writing is and saying, with this kind of writing and this kind of density, you don't do action scenes. <laughs> and I immediately objected because she does have action scenes that are thrilling. They're some of the most thrilling and also some of the most difficult to translate. Um, this one is interesting in that it follows her general principle of having a premise. I would say all of her books have a premise. In this case, the premise, well, it's the premise of the plot, which is the World War II veteran who's paralyzed and who uh was well he was a great hero in the war he was a reconnaissance scout and in in russian the title of the book is a uh, single word it's immortal which is a problem in english in translation i don't know for some reason I, russians like single word titles mm -hmm. i have 
I've got to research this more. It's only <laughs> occurred to me how many books they have that are like that. And because of the nature of Russian, you know that it's a masculine singular adjective. Mm -hmm. So you know it's a person. Right. Besmirny. It's besmirny. And uh, the French translated as l'immortel. So it's very clear what we're talking about. In English, immortal, aside from being, I think, a god-awful title, uh, is also ambiguous. Mm -hmm. It makes you think, is it an immortal person? Um, if you'd say the immortal, you'd th it'd be like talking about a cult leader or something, the immortal. And, mm -hmm. um, so he's sort of the center of all the... Of the of the plot lines that go around, which uh, one involves his wife and one mm -hmm. is his stepdaughter, mm -hmm. the stepdaughter gets involved. This I mean, it takes place in the immediate post-Soviet era, when things were beyond chaotic, and people were uh, felt very mm -hmm. precarious, mm -hmm. and she's trying to be a new Russian, and she's a journalist, but she's in a small town, so that she's not in Moscow. She's in a town in the Urals, which is not Ekaterinburg, but something mm -hmm. like Ekaterinburg, which is where Slavnik is from, and she gets involved in politics. So there's a whole thread about how they make sense of politics, which is pretty hilarious. The uh, candidate she works for is completely baffled by the whole idea of campaign materials right. and things. And in the middle of the night, he has an he wakes up, light bulb goes off, and he says, why are we spending all this money on campaign materials and events and decorations? Let's just give the money to the voters directly, <laughs> <laughs> which, which sets off, you can imagine, the string events that it, it, pay, it sets off. Um, but the main character, the the immortal man, uh, Alexey Afanasyevich, interestingly enough, I hadn't known this when I did it, um, but Afanasyevich's patronymic is from Afanasy, which is um, – oh, no, I'm forgetting the uh, the original classical word, but means immortal, mm -hmm. immortality. It's, so it's from uh, the word for immortality. In any case – it's called the immortal in the reason, aside from the fact that, well, I, that I didn't like the title was because it gave us less information in English than the Russian had. Mm -hmm. So I had my time to do this. I had some leisure and I thought about the title and I thought, eventually I came up with this title, The Man Who Couldn't Die. One of the things about translating Slavnikova is that she does so much with every tool in the toolbox that Russian has, that unless you start using the tools that English has, mm -hmm. you're going to have a decidedly poorer language than it's not won't be comparable. And as many of you know, Russian doesn't have modals. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have could, should, would. It expresses those ideas, but does it differently. Mm -hmm. And what I liked about this title, The Man Who Couldn't Die, is that it has the double meaning. He's trying to kill himself and can't. Mm -hmm. And the family doesn't want him to die because they depend on him. Right. 
So it has that double meaning. Right. So physically impossible, but also you can't do this because it would be bad. You can't, you can't die. We need you. We love yeah. you. We need your pension. <laughs> um, they actually are fond of him, so it's not entirely mercenary. Mm-hmm. Um, and within this whole complex of urges and, and aspirations uh, between the, the son, uh, the daughter, stepdaughter, and the, the stepfather, there is the fear, because he's had his stroke, I didn't, neglected to say, he's mm-hmm. had a stroke under Brezhnev in the late Soviet era. Right. They, as, as times change, they want to shield him from mm-hmm. the changes, and they start redacting the news to yeah. them as they read it to him. And because she's in television, she gets a buddy of hers to create new fake news, fake news, including a 29th Party Congress that has footage from an old Party Congresses and the State Duma Mm -hmm. that she combines. So that's pretty hilarious. Um, The question is, and I hadn't thought about this, but Slavnikova mentioned this last night. Does he believe it? I don't know. It's not yeah. clear. He He's not a fool. And does he believe that things haven't changed and that Brezhnev really is even mm-hmm. longer lived than he already had been? <laughs> Speaking of the man who couldn't die. Yes, exactly. Um, so it reminds me the broad outlines of the plot of the film uh, Goodbye Lenin. Right. right which is uh, also about this how do you shield somebody who might be – damaged by finding out the magnitude of the changes that, exactly. that have happened. Um, but there's also this kind of critique which, you know, you can take footage of the the Duma and splice it with the footage of the old party congresses and there's this similarity that is, she may be suggesting in some way that things haven't changed as much as maybe they seem to have. Certainly in that respect, I think that's exactly what she's suggesting. Um, as to the goodbye Lenin mm. thing, they both accuse each other of plagiarizing. Um, probably they postdate her. But as someone re- was writing, I guess in the introduction, Mark uh, Lipovetsky talks about this and he said, well, who came up with the idea first is not so interesting as the fact that more people didn't come up with this idea, that it's sort of – it's right there to pick up, that that um, there would be reasons to try to maintain the fiction that the past is still present. Um, and indeed – I mean this notion of nostalgia in politics is a pretty widespread one, not only in Russia right now. Exactly. Um, and apparent – I haven't seen Goodbye Lenin. But apparently, Goodbye Lenin is a lot more cheerful. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a black comedy, but it's a comedy. Yeah, this isn't a comedy. <laughs> this isn't a comedy. It's yeah. uh, no, definitely not a comedy. But it's pretty riveting. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also interesting that the protagonist, I guess, the the man who couldn't die, is, is a World War II veteran. Um, and so there's something in here about how you know, the memory of World War II is still not only very front and center in in Russian identity and and political discourse, but how it's used for political ends, how that memory is channeled, if you will, um, in particular ways. Really, it's true. And unlike any of the other events of the Soviet period, 
It's kind of unique. I would say it's one of a kind in that respect. Um, although now it's become almost a carnival, you know. The, it's it's taken on almost a grotesque yeah. image that it didn't always have. I think it was it used to be a lot more solemn than it is now. Right. Well, I think in part because for a long time you had people who actually had memories of the conflict and who had experienced all of the upheaval and the loss that was associated with it. And increasingly, mm-hmm. for people who are alive in Russia today, it's something you know about secondhand. Um, yes. And you don't mm-hmm. have that same visceral response to it. Um, could you talk a little bit about you know, the process of, of translating this book? I mean, you talked about some of the difficulties in terms mm-hmm. of the um, the density of the of the language, but were there other things as you were going through it that made this sort of different or unique or particularly challenging? Uh, I would say more or less the opposite in mm-hmm. that at this point, I'm not baffled by her style and how she create how she constructs things. So I felt more of a mastery of her style after <laughs> after all these years. Yeah. Um, what's interest, uh, interesting? One thing that's interesting about her style is that her novels have a have a definite voice. They they tend to uh, just the sentences build in a similar way. But she's also written stories, mm-hmm. and when she she has a she has an absolutely spectacular collection of. 12 stories that were commissioned by the Russian railroads hmm. for their glossy in-train magazine. Okay. And she started sending them to me and I said, "Olga, this is something for the train and it's got train wrecks in it." <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Can you imagine an American in-flight magazine with uh, fiction right. with a with a plane crash in it?" And she said, well, yeah. Basically, that's what her response was. Well, yeah. Um, but I read – I was reading both – I was reading them at a reading, and I read them in Russian. And The train stories. The train – I was re- read a, part of a train story and part of, I think, this book. Mm-hmm. And even people who didn't uh, know Russian heard a different rhythm to it. Mm. I hope they heard it in the translation too. <laughs> but – in the story, she falls into a more traditional Russian storytelling voice. Um, I would say there were not new translation issues. Some of the same issues that are in any of her translate in her or in any Russian fiction problems with names problems, sure. but she speaks at a fairly high level of diction, which makes it easier. It's yeah. the hardest is when you get lower levels of diction, right? Slang and. Idioms. And lower class. I'm translating Solzhenitsyn now, and when he has soldiers talking, mm. just hold your hat. It's it's <laughs> it's very con- it's it's a voice that is tricky. It's just tricky to do a lower education level, lower cultural level, mm-hmm. and she doesn't have that at all. Everyone speaks properly. Right. So this when was the book published in English? January. Okay. So you've been going around with her and, and doing talks and promoting it in the U.S. What has been the, the critical reception and how have people sort of responded to the the public events that you've done? Fantastically. They love it. Um, no, they really do. Uh, I think there was a Kirkus review that said, this is a writer we need to look at more. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I think that's true. I think especially – well, she's had another book, uh, a book called um, Lighthead or Lightheaded. I can't remember. It came out not that long ago in Andrew Bromfield's translation. Um, so she – this is her third novel. Mm-hmm. And they've all come out in English. In a, that have come out in English, yeah. yeah. There's other ones in, in Russian. And I would say her latest novel, which won the Yasnaya Palyana Prize, may be her very best ever. Um, so the reception's been good. She's she's not a quick read. Mm-hmm. Um, and Russian literature tends to be dark. <laughs> <laughs> if there's one caricature of Russian literature, it, it's that <laughs> I think it's that dark, would be it. and I think it it scares people off, and it and unnecessarily, I think, I think it's unnecessary. Um, so the reception's been uniformly good, and as part of the Russian Library, it's raised its profile. I think that's. Yeah. I think the Russian Library is going to be a very useful project for Russian literature. Yeah, we did a, a podcast episode. I wasn't on it. I was traveling. Uh-huh. But um, last year with um, one of the editors from the Russian library. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems like a, a really good initiative, and especially because when you ask people who are not, you know, avid consumers of, of literature or Russia experts about Russian literature in the United States, you hear Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and Solzhenitsyn, but very few contemporary authors. Or even the 20th century. They're, they're picking up a lot of people mm-hmm. who were uh, neglected for one reason or another. When I was studying Russian, there was almost a blanket ban on mm-hmm. Soviet literature. Nothing decent has been written in the Soviet Union. Right. And we studied either 19th century or or emigrate literature. Yeah. And a lot of stuff that was written in the Soviet Union wasn't published in the Soviet Union. Exactly. Exactly. So we're also – once the dissident literature started to come out, that changed. I just did a book a f- couple of years ago by a man named uh, Yuri Mamleyev mm-hmm. who was a, such a cult figure that – well, not that he was so much a cult figure. He was, but so dangerous – there's another word for that, but dangerous, that he didn't circulate Samizdat. If people wanted to hear, they had to come listen to him, read in out his loud. Apartment. Yeah. Um, what, what was he writing about that was so Oh, well, there explosive. was a, there was religion in it. There was Christianity in it. Mm-hmm. And it was also, it's also extremely violent, which the religion isn't so much uh, a taboo, but the, the extreme violence mm-hmm. uh is not accepted very well in Russian literary circles. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously the the Soviet Union was very restricting in terms of what was allowed to be published. And one of the big changes since the Soviet collapse has been the explosion of the the publication industry and just the availability of a much wider range of of literary works. Um, With the current sort of shift towards a more closed or authoritarian political model in Russia, have you seen indications that some of that openness in the literary sphere that blossomed in the in the early post-Soviet era is now beginning to, to go backwards? Possibly not because of directly because of the political atmosphere, but because the, there's been a consolidation in the publishing industry. Uh-huh. So a lot of the small presses, Ad Marginum is no longer around. Uh, some of the ones that you could always look to to have something excellent right. 
Um, so there's a contraction in the publishing industry, which is probably normal. There were so many publishing yeah. houses. In I was going to say you hear that problem in the U.S. and other Western countries as well. It's been a longer process with us, yes, mm -hmm. but we still do have quite. We have actually we have a thriving independent uh, publishing industry now, and they're responsible for a great deal of the the numbers we're seeing in translations published. Yeah, I don't think the situations are at all comparable. It's a conservative society inherently. Mm -hmm. It's a very male society inherently, and what I find interesting is that the most popular Russian writers here are women. Yeah. Are the Russian women because the male gaze from Russia is very hard for us to swallow. Because it's traditional patriarchal. And there's just no females in it. Mm -hmm. there, there, you know, there are very few women um, included. And if they are, it's, you know, it's, they're just dealing in stereotypes. And the, I, I think Westerners find it almost impossible to believe the relationships between men and women there. Mm -hmm. It's not that they're misdescribing right. anything. <laughs> it's exactly how they are. Yeah. Um, I was talking to Dmitry Gluchowski about this, and I said we were talking about the problems of publishing contemporary literature, and I said this is a huge issue um, for American readers who are majority women. Mm -hmm. And he said, "Yeah, but that's that's, that's the, the reality, reality of, the of it <laughs> exactly." And there's nothing you can really do about it. You can't lie about it. Even the even the the approach of women, I I don't think there's been much change since that book, um, Walking the Tightrope, by uh, Francine Duplessis Gray, who's Russian background, and in praise of various women. Mm -hmm. This is in the dissident era. She more or less supported the view that I had always heard inside the Soviet Union, which is the country is held together by women. We do all the work, mm -hmm. and we're very proud of that. And my response to that is, and you have no power and no money. So what's good about this? <laughs> um, and there's still a certain pride in the, the role that women play, but they're still mm -hmm. largely, although not to the same extent, disenfranchised um, and certainly underrepresented politically. That's right. putting it mildly, yeah. And, you know, we, we kind of expect that Russia is going to be European. Mm -hmm. And I think we expected after the breakup of the Soviet Union that, oh, they can write anything they want now, so they'll join Western Europe. And they don't have to write something political for it to get published here because before then, right. almost everything had a political side to it that was published here, translated and mm -hmm. published. And we're all waiting with bated breath. What are they going to do? <laughs> and what they did was turn inward, to mm -hmm. my point, my mind. They became very focused on their own situation, which is, I guess, normal. They became quite apolitical. The literature became quite apolitical. And they became... Um, intent on their language, which made it even more inaccessible because the point of what they were writing was what they were doing with the Russian language. Uh -huh. And that was the 90s, <laughs> more or less. <laughs> uh, didn't really help much. Um, 
And frankly, I think now that it's because of the increased tensions that we're seeing any more interest in Russian literature. You think we're not? I think we are we seeing are. more. I think that there's that we've got the political motive back again. Mm-hmm. And although I will say that this, the efforts of the Institute of Translation in Moscow have been huge. Mm-hmm. Um, the grants they give have really been critical, and the Russian Library yeah. is their sponsorship. So I know you've translated um, a lot of Slavnikov's work, but who are some other um, leading contemporary Russian authors whose work is available in English that you know listeners of, of Russian roulette might be interested in checking out? One of my very favorite contemporary writers is Leonid Yusufovich, and Archipelago Books put out my translation of his early, earlier uh, novella called Horseman of the Sands mm-hmm. in the fall, in September last year. And he is a historian by education. His And he's one of those people who kind of kept a low profile during the Soviet period. He taught high school history. Um, his dissertation was on medieval diplomacy. Hmm. And he's got a strong interest in Mongolia. Hmm. So there'll always be something about, there'll always be something slipped in about Mongolia in mm-hmm. any book, big or little of of it, um, which he says dates from before his military service, but he's, he served in Buryatia. Okay. And this book, as I said, an earlier book, um, that takes place largely in Buryatia and Mongolia, and it's about uh, Baron Ungensternberg, oh, uh-huh. the the Mad Baron, right? About whom he wrote a very important uh, called uh, Autocrat of the Desert, Samadjerjits Pustini, which which Pildevin bases Chapayev and, and Chapayev and Pustata on, and he just. I guess was it last? It must have been the year before last that he won both the Big Book Award and the National Bestseller Prize, which are the two biggest prizes, which he's won before, for a book called Winter Road, which is a gorgeous book about two generals at the end of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. This is historic. It's I'm not sure what we're gonna what you would call this. It's documentary fiction. It's what Solzhenitsyn says he writes. Uh-huh. Um, we don't really have – it's not exactly history, but it's not exactly fiction either. Um, and it's about two generals who were both quite admirable men mm-hmm. who faced off in uh, – near the Sea of Ahotsk and actually fought their last mm-hmm. battle after the end of the Civil War. But, of course, they didn't they know didn't that. Know they didn't know it had right. ended. Um, it's a beautiful book and it's looking for a publisher, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Um, in English, you mean? In English. So he's he's one of a name that people might not have heard of who's mm-hmm. really quite fine. I did, an, I did an earlier book of his called – that's in English called Harlequin's Costume. Actually, that's more or less what it's called in Russian. He did a wonderful trilogy of historical detective novels mm. based on a man named Putilin who was a – Chief Inspector in St. Petersburg, a historical figure, um, kind of like Inspector Morse, kind of rumpled and mm-hmm. and lovable and disdained by the fancy people, but who always figures it out, right. these complicated mm-hmm. things. And 
Uh, so we were able to publish one of those, and I recommend that as well. And another writer who I think very highly of, although he's he's extremely rewarding, but he's also quite literary, quite mm-hmm. high level, is Mikhail Shishkin, whose uh, Maiden Hair um, is one of the most beautiful books I've ever translated. I I would say those are three mm-hmm. writers I'm very interested in. Uh, I'm also interested in a man named Dmitry Gluchowski. Mm-hmm. There are other contemporary writers who are interesting. Um, of course. Yeah. Um, now, you've also translated classical Russian literature, right? Yes. So do you find the the process uh, very different? Those two processes are completely different. When you translate a classic, you've got, first of all, heightened scrutiny because these are important books. You don't trans mm. if it's a classic, it's obviously important. Right. So every everyone's got an opinion. Um, the first the first one I ever did was um, Yuri Aryesh's Envy, and I was a complete innocent on this one, and I did it for New York Review Books because they uh, when when Edwin Frank was beginning the press, very admirably he if he found a book that he was interested in. He would investigate previous translations and ask people to review them and say, should we do a new one or mm-hmm. keep the old one? Well, in this case, with Envy, it really needed a new translation. It's it's a it's from the late 20s, and it's actually one of the most terrifying books I've ever translated. It's supposed to be comical, but it predicts the horror that's to come hmm. in a in a if it doesn't predict it, but we know what's going to come of it, and it's got a great premise. It's about a guy who is not fitting in with the new ch- with the revolution and the new Soviet man, and mm-hmm. so he decides that he's going to collect the old traits that are no longer characteristic of Soviet man, and he will. And the first en- the first trait he's going to care uh, find mm-hmm. an example of is envy. Mm-hmm. He never gets past that. But <laughs> anyways, so I translated this book and, you know, you find things that can be done better or fashions change in translation. You mm-hmm. have different standards for translation and different uh, expectations of mm-hmm. translation now. And the book starts with this wonderful line, on payot pa utram v which is pretty condensed for Russian it scans. It's got a rhythm mm-hmm. to it. Yeah. On payot pa utram v and the way it had been traditionally translated was more or less in the same order of words. He, he sings in the morning in the WC. Usually, it's how it's translated, which is a garbage English sentence. It's got all those prepositional phrases, and they're in the wrong order for English. And um, it's no way to start a book. Absolutely no way to start a book. I felt that that was a key sentence and needed to be done more in the spirit of the original. And so I translated it, Mornings He Sings in the Toilet, which has the same rhythm and is an English sentence. It was also condensed in English. And I went and did a reading in Berkeley. Mm -hmm. And I was so innocent. Um, And at the end of the reading, a Russian immigre comes up to me pecking at the, you know, pointing at the text. Mm -hmm. No, 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 that's not what it says. 
he's not on the toilet. He's in the toilet. And I said, <laughs> in I English, assure you, work. he's not in the toilet. <laughs> he may also not be on the toilet, but he's definitely not in the toilet. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you get from the ridiculous, two very serious concerns. Um, when I did Anna Karenina, there was another another translation came out at the same time by mm. Rosamund Bartlett. And we subsequently became very good friends because we figured, although we had translated the book completely differently, we had both spent a lot of time on the same book yeah. and knew a lot about this book. <laughs> she, in the meantime, she had written a biography of Tolstoy while she was translating the book. We had a lot in us about Anna Karenina. And she took a very different approach to it. In what way? Uh, a lot of it was about vocabulary. Mm-hmm. I was my motivation for translating Anna Karenina was having read it after many decades of not reading it and not being a particularly a Tolstoy expert or fan. Um, but I read it and was blown away by his style, and I thought I didn't realize that he was so revolutionary in his style, very mm-hmm. modernistic, very. Um, I mean, you read it in Russian. I, when, when I read it that time, and I'd read it before, but to mm-hmm. read it knowing Russian so much better and really being able to appreciate his innovations. And I did some research, which is kind of unusual for me, but I did some research and read his correspondence at the time and found that, indeed, he was very concerned about style mm-hmm. and very concerned about um, – he had a line where he said – the problem with, with Russian is that it's so easy to make it beautiful, <laughs> which is true. You can just – or especially he could. He could make it beautiful. That's why he was Tolstoy. And then he was Tolstoy and we're not, right? Um, and he was coming close to his religious conversion and he decided that he wanted to resist that, – that it was almost immoral. In fact, it was immoral to have that kind of affectation and that he needed to – Resist it, mm. which he did by doing very some very unorthodox things. And one of the things he did, in fact, he said in in one of his letters to his editor, he said, "I'm I'm thinking about writing this book." And it was early 1870, so it was mm-hmm. right before he wrote Anna Karenina. He said, "And I think I might not write it in Russian because it's so easy to make it beautiful in Russian." Um, what language? I think he may have mentioned Chukchi. <laughs> Um, I'm not sure he knew Chukchi that well, uh, but he could have written in English or he mm-hmm. could have written in French, I guess. Um, it would certainly have done – made for that estrangement that he was looking for. So he limited his – one of the things he did was s- severely limit his vocabulary. He did not use synonyms. Hmm. It has an accumulative effect or cumulative effect. Everyone has resisted that. Except I thought that was important. I thought that that was that was a feature that had nothing to do with exactly how Russian works. It was a feature of him mm. and his style. It's as, as a translator, you've got to separate what's part of the language and what's part of the author. Uh-huh. I looked to see what the effects were and how that how that influenced um, the work, with the caveat that. It's going to work differently in English than it does in Russian because Russian uh, – English has a great need for specificity and it doesn't like general words as much as uh, – anyways, that's another subject. But whereas Rosamond was more interested in 
what is the award that fits this situation more specifically? And so she has a lot more variation in vocabulary, which was was a different choice. Yeah. So you're when you do a when you do a classic, uh, as, as the wonderful translator and professor Timothy Sergey said at one in, in an article, it's almost like there's a dialogue between the translations. Mm-hmm. They inform each other, and mm-hmm. when you do something new, you almost have a different task. Because your task is to introduce a writer. Mm-hmm. So Constance Garnett introduced Tolstoy. Right. And everybody and of, loved it. <laughs> right. Well, and a lot of English speakers know Tolstoy as told by Constance Garnett. Exactly. But it worked. It worked and it made and it created a lifelong uh, love affair with Russian literature in English. And once people were eased into that, then you could have translations that maybe addressed more things that were less palatable. Mm-hmm. In in a modern work of literature, not only is it helpful to the reader to ease them into this new writer, but I can simplify the name system yeah. in a way that for a classic you can't. So it's a very different process. Great. Um have you figured out the your next translation project, or is that still too far down the road? Oh, they just keep coming. Um, <laughs> I'm actually in the middle. I'm not at the middle. I'm finally coming close to uh, only a year off from the end of uh, the Solzhenitsyn project. I'm doing mm. working on the Red Wheel. Yeah. So I've done one of the volumes. I'm doing all of March 1917. Uh-huh. So I did the first. The first one came out in 20. 17. The second volume is coming out this fall. I've turned in the third volume, and I'm working on the fourth. This is just March 1917. This is just March 1917. And each volume is 700 pages (laughs) long. Yes. Um, I know a whole lot about the February Revolution, (laughs) which uh, is actually... Speaking of, what did you call it before? Documentary fiction? Documentary. And and that's what he calls this, too. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, it, be, there are some invented characters in this. Yeah. Most of it's not, but for the for the soldiers, for the right, more for commoners, the who were not historical figures. Right. Yeah, I, I read um, August nineteen sixteen, and it's nineteen fourteen. Kind of, no, this, November nineteen. November nineteen sixteen. Yeah, and it's the same. Yeah, it takes a long time to get through. It does. So if you're, unless you're able to just kind of sit back and enjoy it. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. Um, but I really have enjoyed it for mm-hmm. the most part, and have a picture of the f- of that revolution and just the atmosphere and the yeah the processes that were going on. That I'm glad I have from having done that. So I'm doing that, and I'm doing. Um, I have another contemporary novel coming up too. Yeah. Great. Well, we will definitely look forward to those, and maybe we'll have you back when they come out. Please do. All right. Marianne, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right. That's it for our show today. Thank you for joining. Uh, There's a link to Marion's bio uh, in the show notes. And there's also a link where you can buy a copy of her new translation of Olga Slavnikova's The Man Who Couldn't Die. 
if you haven't done so already, uh, you should subscribe to Russian Roulette on iTunes. You can also leave us a rating or a review there. And if you don't use iTunes, you can check us out on Google Play or SoundCloud. You can also subscribe there, too. Uh, as always, tell your friends, keep spreading the word, and keep listening. Uh, and keep sending mailbag questions. Uh, you can send them to rep at csis.org with the words Russian Roulette in the subject line. We're going to do another mailbag segment here soon on the podcast. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter at CSIS Russia, or you can follow me directly at Dr. J. Mankoff. And finally, a uh, big thank you to everybody who works so hard to make the podcast happen every two weeks. That includes our brand new producer, research associate, and program manager, Roxana Gabidulina, and the entire CSIS external relations and IMAP team. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again in two weeks. Mm-hmm.